coming to you from Jiva Theater Center in Rochester, New York, the ancestral and occupied territory of the Seneca. This is out of the rehearsal hall. In our second season, we're taking a deep dive into the theatrical process, even while we are still creating work from the rehearsal halls in our own homes. This season might find you listening to audio plays, streaming a solo performance online, and attending the theater in a new, socially distant manner. And in this podcast, we'll explore it all. My name is Jenny Werner, and I am Jiva's literary director and resident dramaturg. Just like last season, each episode will feature a stage manager's favorite rehearsal room calls, and I'll be joined by Jiva staff and artists and scholars from around the country for a conversation out of the rehearsal hall. Welcome, company. We are gathered. It is the top of our rehearsal day. Today, I'm joined by Fran Dasilvera, Jiva's assistant literary director. Fran, welcome to season two. Thank you for having me. I feel like a season regular now. It's great. <laughs> you are. And, you know, I never would have imagined that we would have a second season of this podcast, but here we are. I'm excited about it. Yeah, there's so many wonderful people to talk to. We have to do a second season. That's so true. And speaking of talking to wonderful people, I'm really excited about today's conversation with Kirsten Greenidge and Chisa Hutchinson, two of the playwrights whose work is featured in Recognition Radio, Jiva's audio play festival celebrating Black stories. A big part of our job in the literary department is reading plays and keeping up with what stories playwrights are telling and trying to get introduced to new writers. And for this festival, you and I had a pretty specific task. Do you want to talk a little bit about what we were looking for in the scripts that we considered for the festival? Yeah. um, (laughs) Talking about reading a lot of plays. (laughs) (laughs) Because we we, we read many for, for this one. Um, So not only were we looking for plays that were written by Black artists, um, but we were also looking for plays that would fit in the audio format. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Not not necessarily that were written for for radio, but that could be adapted um, uh, while with us working with a playwright in order to do that. so while I was reading personally, I kind of um, was looking for for plays that had a lot of detail within the dialogue itself, like a lot mm-hmm. of visual elements within the dialogue, um, because that's not necessarily something that we would be able to to mm-hmm. do like we would on the stage, which is majority <laughs> visual, um, but dialogue that really conjured images. Um, so that while our audiences would be listening, they would also be able to um, picture the story unfolding in their mind. Yeah. Um, kind of kind of like when you're reading a screenplay, actually, where that's um, the, the way that the dialogue is laid out on the page is meant to uh, be like very cinematic in that way. Mm-hmm. So kind of but but all of that, like the action and the visuals are somehow described in the conversation that's happening on the stage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, either described like by, by the characters or in, in the way that they're responding to one another or to what is, to what's happening. Yeah. Um, which is, which I think is, would be really exciting for actors to, to play because I feel like the, the actor's body is, 
their biggest instrument, but now it would be the their voice. Right, right. And then I think also I was excited when we read a script where sound played a big part already in the play, like, you know, um, the sounds of water or um, the sounds of medical equipment or, you know, things like that, where you, you just knew that there was a rich aural world already at play. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> I feel like that was the little, um, a little sign that the, yeah. <laughs> that it would work, <laughs> that it would work. That it would yeah. Um, and especially now that I think playwrights are thinking more in terms of design as they're writing, um, not only scenic design, but um, I, I see a lot of like projects, projections included in um, in scripts or a lot of like choreography. I think playwrights are being a little bit more playful in that way. And I think mm -hmm. sound design is definitely a piece of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think also the um, with the plays that we chose, there's such a relevance to this time right now that we're in in a hundred different ways, mm -hmm. um, which is really exciting. And I think it's something that we probably look for all the time, whether it's a stated goal or not. Yeah, it um, all all of these were written before you know the pandemic hit before. George Floyd. Um, but the the thing that I kept noticing and that was coming up in conversations that we were having having was just that, how relevant it did seem. Um, and it it kind of just goes to show that that all of these brilliant black playwrights were were writing about these issues um before, you know, before America woke up. So. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's a hundred percent true. Yeah. And not, not just these contemporary playwrights, but you know, like canonical playwrights as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's introduce our guests for the day, shall we? Yes. Yes. Um, Kirsten Greenwich is a playwright from Boston, Massachusetts. Her work often explores the intersections of race, class, and gender, and seeks to place stories and language that are inherently theatrical on the stage. She seeks to create more multidimensional roles for underrepresented actors of color, more roles for women, and more plays that challenge mainstream audiences and provoke change. Kirsten is the recipient of a Village Voice Obie Award for her play Milk Like Sugar, which also received a Lucille Lortel nomination, an Odelco nomination, and an Independent Reviewers of New England Award. Other plays include The Luck of the Irish, originally produced by Huntington Theatre Company, Baltimore, which is the product of a Big Ten Consortium Commission, a program created to address the lack of roles for female BFA candidates, Zenith, Bud Not Buddy, with music by Terrence Blanchard, Bossa Nova, Splendor, and Sans Culottes in the Promised Land. Currently, Kirsten is playwright-in-residence at Company One Theater in Boston, Massachusetts, as part of the Mellon Foundation's National Playwright Residency Program, administered in partnership by HowlRound, where in addition to writing a play for Company One, she works in conjunction with Company One's dramaturgy team to facilitate Play Lab. Company One's program for new and emerging playwrights. She was also recently named Boston's Playwright Laureate by Roxbury Community College. 
Kirsten is the assistant professor of theater at the School of Theater at Boston University and lives in Westboro, Massachusetts with her husband, two children, sister, and mother in their writing compound named Gwendolyn. And Chisa Hutchison is a New York-based playwright and screenwriter. Most recently, her radio drama, Proof of Love, was presented by Audible and New York Theater Workshop at the Minetta Lane Theater in New York City and can now be found on Audible's digital platform with a 4.6 rating and everything too. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> Chisa happily presented her other plays, which include Dirt Rich, She Like Girls, This Is Not the Play, Sex on Sunday, Tunde's Trumpet, The Subject, Somebody's Daughter, Alondra Was Here, Surely Goodness and Mercy, from the author of Whitelisted, and Dead and Breathing at such venues as the Lark Theater, Summer Stage, Atlantic Theater Company, Rattlestick Theater, the Contemporary American Theater Festival, the National Black Theater, Delaware Rep, Second Stage Theater, and Arch 468 in London. She has been a Humanitas Fellow, a Dramatist Guild Fellow, a Lark Fellow, a resident at Second Stage Theater and New Dramatist, a New York Neo-Futurist, and a staff writer for the Blue Man Group. Some of her awards include a GLAAD Award, a Lilly Award, a New York Innovative Theater Award, the Paul Green Award, and a Helen Merrill Award, the, Le the Lanford Wilson Award. She has a BA from Vassar College and an MFA from NYU. Currently, Chisa is wondering when, if ever, the adaptation of Terms of Endearment that she works on with Lee Daniels for Paramount will go into production, having been pandemically postponed. Meanwhile, she's working on an adaptation of Oliver Twist with Ice Cube for Disney. She writes original screenplays, too. Her first feature, The Subject, in India about a white documentarian dealing with the moral fallout from exploiting the death of a Black teen, has been selected for 17 festivals and counting, including the Art of Brooklyn Film Festival, the Lighthouse International Film Festival, and the Bronze Lens Film Festival, where it won Best Narrative Feature. To learn more, visit www.chisahutchinson.com. Whew. What do you say? Should we call Kristen and Chisa? Let's do it. Okay, team, we're going to run it from the top. Is there anyone not ready? All right, everyone stand by. Kristen and Chisa, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, I would love to start kind of in the big picture um, world and um, just ask you to talk a little bit about what led you to playwriting. Um, I, I'll start. So I've always been um, a, a bit of a word nerd. Um, like I was that kid who like in the fourth grade when you had vocabulary words would be like, <laughs> it'd be like, okay, write The assignment would be like, write a sentence for each vocabulary word. And I would write three and also <laughs> pictures next to them so that the teacher like knew that I knew what the hell this word. <laughs> so like, yeah, me and words, man, we go way back. And, um, you know, growing up poor in Newark, it was like, I didn't have any access to theater, you know? So mostly it was just like short stories and, or, you know, I'd go to the library and like read DC Andrews novels, you know? So it was, it was like, um, so short stories was like my, was, was my way into storytelling. Um, and then I realized later on 
<laughs> later on after um you know i got a scholarship to go like to this swanky private school for high school um and they had like theater classes and a theater program and everything right the fancy arts programs i realized later after i had been exposed to theater there that oh i wasn't writing short stories they were mostly dialogue i was writing plays this entire time <laughs> um so yeah and um and then, and then I found purpose um, because I went to see my drama teacher, Mr. Pridham. I love him so much. He took me to see August Wilson, the great Robert Brucey on the issue of Colorblind Casting. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this was back when people gave a shit about theater. So like the place was packed. Wow. I was like up in the raft. <laughs> It's like leaning over, just hanging on every word. And of course I found myself like really, um, really gravitating toward August Wilson's point of view, which of course was basically like, look, this whole like trying to shoehorn black and brown bodies into these traditionally white narratives, bullshit. Like if you really want to put these actors to work, you will tell stories that are actually about people of color. And I was like, right on. And he's like, we need more stories that are actually about people of color. And I was like, yes. I'm gonna do that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's that's where that's where I decided. Basically, you know, I think it was like junior year of high school. Um, I decided that I was gonna try this playwriting thing for real, um, and I studied it um, in in undergrad at Vassar, um, which I say study uh, loosely. I use that word loosely because <laughs> the theater program there is really geared more toward actors and directors, and I did a lot of independent study. <laughs> So really, I didn't learn too much. Um, so I, I went to grad school and <laughs> um, I studied um, playwriting and screenwriting and TV writing because they make you do all three at NYU um, Dramatic Writing Department, the Department of Dramatic Writing at Tisch. Um, and that was a game changer. So yeah, that's 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 how come playwriting. Yeah, that's an incredible. What an incredible formative experience to um, to listen to to that debate. That's something you know. I've certainly read all of the everything I can about that. You know, but to have been there is pretty incredible. Yeah, how wonderful, Kirsten. What about you? It's amazing. Um, I have I have read about that, and that conversation uh, was definitely influential on me. I've always been. Um, what my parents considered uh, dramatic. So like <laughs> acting out things in our living room, uh, probably more so than my sisters and being some, sometimes celebrated for it and sometimes told to be a little bit quiet. Um, uh, it wasn't until I, and I was wrote, so I was, was always writing, but I, I too wrote a lot of short stories um, and I, lo I, I love words, but I was also an oldest child. So for me, that took the form of um, being very autocratic and uh, playing teacher a lot and making people learn word, words with me. Um, when I was 12, uh, our uh, seventh grade teacher took us to go see August Wilson's Joe Turner's Come and Gone at the Huntington Theater. And um, I went to that performance and I, I, I was transfixed. I had a great time. I have no idea what the rest of my class was doing because I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved how it fit, like the, the, the uh, chairs creaked. I loved the smell of like, the curtain. It was, I just had a great time. My parents had, taught, had always thought that I was a very dramatic ch 
child. So they had taken me to theater, but it was all children's theater, except for the whiz um, they had, that we used to live in New York before we moved to Boston, back to Boston. Um, but they had taken me mostly to children's theater. So this was the first time I had gone to see an adult play. So I felt, felt very grown up. And I think I had had enough presence of mind to feel like I, that I had had a somewhat more grown up experience or life changing experience that afternoon. Um, and I decided I wanted to be a playwright, not a fiction writer. I kept it to myself because despite, I know that the, per, one of the purposes of this trip was, uh, to let us see a different voice than maybe we had been exposed to in August Wilson, but I just kept it to myself because I was just like, well, I am, I'm black and I'm a girl, so I cannot be a playwright. So I kept it to myself for a few years and it wasn't until college. I went to Western University where I took my first playwriting class and that was not until two years in. And it was um, a workshop class. So it was not studying, it was not studying playwriting. It was every week you come in with new pages and we read your pages. It was a wonderful class taught by the playwright and screenwriter Dara Cloud. And she was a wonderful mentor to us as well. And she encouraged me to go to Iowa, where she went. She went through the Poets play Workshop and the Playwrights Workshop there. And um, they finally let me in. It took me two, two years. I thought, they were gonna, they thought it was going to take longer. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. I did not understand it. It was like the Iowa Playwrights Workshop. I was like, they, they, they rejected me the first time. I'm just going to keep on applying. And said, let me in. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of... When I went there, there was a lot of freedom to find your voice there. So I was instructed in playwriting, but there was a lot of freedom to figure out what you were, what you were trying to do, how to find your artistic voice. And also, it is in the corn, basically, on <laughs> I-90 to I-80. And then, you know, Iowa City, you just shoots up in your, your, uh, this little town amongst the corn. So there's not, to me, coming from a coast, there wasn't as much to do. So I got a lot of writing done. Um, I, I really loved it out there. I, I was, it took a little while to get uh, used to being out there in the middle of, um, in the middle of the corn, but, uh, I, I really did have a, a wonderful time, um, finding my voice, learning how to write more and they bring a lot of guest artists in. So I was exposed to a lot of people. Well, and I'm, I'm struck also, um, just by the, the importance of those teachers who took you to those experiences, um, we talk so much about the value and the, you know, the importance of arts education um, at a young age. And these these two teachers who took both of you um, to experience August Wilson and the life changing nature of that is really amazing and important. Yeah. I'm really curious that since you're both educators and you both teach, like what your um, what your individual teaching styles are and like you know, reflecting back on um, the way that you got to playwriting, like, what, what, what do you tell your students? <laughs> I think I, I am deeply influenced by the idea of finding your own artistic voice and giving people enough time and space to make mistakes, to fail, um, uh, and to hear their words out loud. So I'm definitely influenced by Dara's workshop where you just, you keep bringing in pages over and over and over again. Um, very different experience now that I oversee an actual playwriting track at Boston University where I'm just like, okay, what, what do I have to actually teach people as opposed to just coming in and hearing your pages every week? Um, so uh, uh, making sure that people have the skills when they leave um, an institution, not that I didn't, 
but because um, I, I, I hope that I did, but making sure people have the skills when they leave an institution to be able to do whatever they want to do. Yeah, I'm 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 pretty loosey goosey when it comes to my, my playwriting classes. I'm really um very much. I just come in and I'm like, okay, what do you need? Like, what do you need to tell your story? And then the only thing really that I ask that um, my playwriting students think about is how the very particular and peculiar medium of live theater um, benefits that story, right? So like, how can you, how can you really wield live theater in such a way that it, um, that it enhances um, an audience's experience of, of your story, right? Um, how how can it, um, yeah, how can it enhance how they take that story in, right? Um, so yeah, that's really all I, I ask. <laughs> um, and for me, it's more like breadth over depth. So um, like I give them um, a lot of different shorter assignments that sort of, Okay, in this one, I'm not here to tell you what to write. I'm not here to censor you, but you do need to feature meaningful nudity, right? Or in this one, you need to you need to wield silence, right? Um, audience participation, right? So all these these sort of these things, these tools that you can use in live theater in a different way, right? Um, than than any other medium. Um, so yeah, that's that's really the only thing. <laughs> that I that I try to emphasize is like you know, or I just ask them the question of like, why does this absolutely have to happen on a stage or um, in a live theater setting? It's funny because in teaching, I, I often think like, oh my goodness, if I, if I were a, a lawyer, like how would I approach my teaching? How would it be different than playwriting? Because so playwriting, so often I'm at the same position, in the same position as my students. Looking at a blank, looking at a blank page that morning, like an hour before I teach my class, where they have been looking at the same blank page. So I try to be really transparent that no matter how many experiences I have, or how many rooms I sit in, or how many writers' rooms I sit in with people, um, at some point I feel the same fear interpretation, mm -hmm. or um, that my students are feeling, mm -hmm. and we all start from zero um, over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I make no uh, aspersions that I know how to do this every single time I sit down and do it. Mm. Are you teaching grad school? Uh, no, no. I oh, teach right. undergrad. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Cause I was, um, I teach undergrad too. And I was like, okay, I just, I feel like maybe what I teach is a little more rudimentary and <laughs> a little more like, okay, what is theater? Right. <laughs> so, um, grad school. I mean, uh, I teach undergrads. Yeah. EFA. Mm -hmm. Can we audit these classes? Like, I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> I get, I would be so worried. People would be like, what? How? You are a playwright? Like, what is going on? <laughs> well, it's so, it's interesting what you're saying, Chisa, about, you know, um, making sure that you're writing for this very specific thing of the live stage. And it's interesting to think about that in a moment where we can't have access mm -hmm. to that live stage. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like, I don't know, like this time where we don't have access to theaters is changing how you think about storytelling at all? 
Not really. I mean, I have been doing a lot, a lot more radio dramas. I feel like I'm. A, I just I'm, adapt, I'm in the middle of adapting a play um, that I wrote at, for live theater um, for radio. Um, well, obviously, I mean, you guys know that, but like, yeah. <laughs> it's for our festival. Oh, right, right. Are you doing the same? And also, I'm writing a, a an actual radio drill, you know, from the beginning. It's my second radio play because I've written one for Audible before. Um, and for me, that's just a different muscle. That's like not, um, uh, you know, it's, it's working the tricep instead of the bicep, right? So it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> however you slice it because words, right? Like I get to use words. I don't, you know, right. um, so that's, that's fine. What I think, um, is happening for me now is actually not all that different from what happens for me on a regular basis, as far as like how I create, which is to say that I'm, I'm, I'm just in a period of development or in a period of, um, uh, hybrid not hibernation because it's more active than hibernation but like um I write I tend to write in bursts anyway like I've never been one of those writers who like is like and they're always the most vocal type a plus folks (laughs) apologies Kristen if you are this person but like the people who are like you know oh yes I get up at five o'clock every day to make sure that I can write for three hours before I get ready for my you know and the people who are like yeah yeah, if you're not writing every day you're not a writer kind of a thing and I'm like well shit you know and for a while I was like I guess I'm not a real writer you know because I don't that's not how I do I guess I'm just not disciplined enough and then it was like maybe play number like five or six but I was like you know what my process works for me, <laughs> right? Um, and I go into like long period months where I don't write a thing, you know, it'll just be, uh, you know, I'll just be thinking about an idea for a really long time. I'll be in the shower going, oh yeah, that's good. <laughs> you know? But then I won't, I won't, um, I won't set my fingers to keys for another few months and, and it's fine. And when I do, then it's like, you know, and then um, I get a draft out pretty quickly and it comes out. Um, my friend, my friend, Sarah Gantry says it, it comes out so crystalline. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess so. I guess it does. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, it comes out pretty whole by the time I actually sit down to write it. And um, yeah, I've been experiencing that this entire time, which is like I'll have periods of intense like, all right, I'm just going to sit down and write this. And I've written good grief. Okay. I finished one play, started another, um, uh, wrote a screenplay, wrote like three television series treatments. You know what I mean? So it's been a very productive period. Um, but it's also, it's also, um, allowed me a lot of space <laughs> you know um to not feel like I've got to burn the candles the, the candle at all ends you know um in order to to get work out but also um also teach and commute and do laundry and right like it's there's some space <laughs> um that was a very long answer I'm 
<laughs> that's good. That's great. That's great. What about you, Kirsten? Do you feel like it's changed anything in your writing? Um, I, I, I would have to say no, I don't think so. I think the, the one thing I've noticed is that um, the lull that I, that I hear people having at, in this time, like that, that many theaters are dark, it doesn't feel like things are dark. Um, my husband has asked me yesterday, he was just like, how are you having all these meetings? when most of the theaters aren't up and running. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, not to say like, oh, I'm getting so much work. It's that um, uh, uh, I, I think I'm still feeling like I, many, many, many theaters are still doing some sort of work, I think, or some, some are. Um, my work hasn't slowed down. I think I'm still doing a lot. I've been doing some things for Zoom or um, our radio plays. Uh, some some shorter and then some longer. Um, since March, I think I've churned out some shorter stuff, rewritten some stuff that uh, uh, supposedly has been moved up in, for next year or the year after, and then um, gotten some commissions. People are planning farther out, mm-hmm. um, and then gotten some some brand new stuff. Um, like the uh, I'm writing a an opera uh, with other with seven other people. Um, an episodic eight episodes, which I'm, I've never done. And, and I wouldn't have ever um, said yes to you if it hadn't, it was all timing. But um, if I didn't have like a, a, a summer block free, I usually don't have, because I usually do a lot of writing in the summer um, because I'm teaching all during the year. And so it just happened to me that there was this, something free. It, the summer felt more free because of this time. And I said, yes. And now it's, it's a lot of fun. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know opera could sound like this. And it's, it is, it's a lot of fun to do stuff over Zoom. Um, I am not the type of writer who wakes up at five, mostly because I have, I have kids. I never actually was. The times that I have been, I'll do it for a little bit. And then I'll, I, I'm not a morning person. <laughs> when I've hit that stride, it's, it's usually at night. And I, 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 someone once told me that, you know, when you do that and you have a family or you're caretaker the other people in your life will find a way to fill that hole they'll wake up with you at five o'clock in the morning and be like is anyone gonna feed me where are you up <laughs> so um i found other ways to work but i've never really been that type of order. I, I worker um in terms of a writer i write in verse and i've also taught a lot of students and gotten to know a lot of artists over the pa- over many many years to know that there's so many different ways to be an artist and to be a playwright and no one way is the right way. Um, I remember when I was a student, Eric and my teacher, one of my teachers, Eric N said, you know, you can be a teacher and know that one of your students is going to write something that is 10 times more brilliant than you will ever write. And I remember him saying that. I was like, what the hell? That's <laughs> <laughs> but what I guess what he meant was that was some, similar to that, that there's no one way to read. To, to do this. There's no one way to teach this. Um, and uh, uh, I've watched many of my students and had to mentor many students in meet them where they are and teach them how to find the processes right for themselves and not strong arm and uh, a process onto them. And in doing that, I have to say, well, yeah, you waking up at seven in the morning and writing for six hours doesn't work for everybody. It certainly doesn't work for me. And I would be lying to tell my students to do that. I can say, hey, one of the things I do say to my students is like writing is similar to me, like um, 
an exercise practice. What is your practice? It can change over the years. Like running a marathon, most people do not get up and run a marathon and then are fine the next day or, or survive it. Um, <laughs> so what do you want to do to practice so that you can, uh, your, your craft, so that you can have practice it the way you want to? Um, and think of it that way as opposed, you know, you don't get up and just, you know, exercise or climb a mountain that first day. It also helps sometimes when you, they feel like their uh, desire wants to help them run, make them run a marathon and they don't have the skill set yet uh, or the experience yet to do that. Are these new mediums that um, y'all are writing in or these new ways of approaching theater? Are they like either through radio or through Zoom, um, things that you would like to continue post pandemic? Or are you like, as soon as we're back in the theater, we're just going, you know, stage only? <laughs> I'm excited about whatever medium, man. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I am, because I, I, um, I love a challenge. I love. Um, I love picking up my tools and being like, all right, how can I use the, these for to to chisel away at this thing, right? I just like the I just like the challenge. So, oh my God, Kirsten, to hear that you are doing an opera, right? I'm like, ooh, opera, right? <laughs> ooh, possibility, challenge, right? Like I'm very uh, I'm titillated by that. Um, I would be scared scared shitless. Oh, I'm scared. <laughs> Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm terrified. Yes, right. But um, but yeah, I feel I'm excited by like whatever um, whatever new thing comes along, right? Um, as long as I get to to keep the core of like here, I'm telling these stories um about people who don't often get stories told about them, or if they do, they're woefully misrepresented or um just not nuanced enough for my tastes damn it <laughs> right so so um so yeah as long as I get to do that I don't really I don't really care what medium <laughs> I'm working in um yeah yeah I have to say a strong echo to that if you're telling if you're telling your story your way whatever medium is it's I think it's all good I'd say the content, um, we'll see what happens with Zoom in this new mode of storytelling, but also the access in terms of who gets to, who gets to access these stories mm -hmm. um, is really exciting at this time. Um, uh, people who might not ordinarily get to make it to the theater, mm -hmm. um, a, lot of these, a lot of the Zoom readings uh, or, or uh, digital content is low cost or free or is give it or people can access it without having to leave their homes. So if you're mobily challenged or um, disabled in any way, you, it's easier to sometimes to get to see and hear this content in a way that you weren't, maybe weren't able to access it before. <laughs> I can also say that one of the reasons why I think I'm actually working more and more steadily, much to the discernment of my family. So there's eight of us quarantined in here. So it's not just my husband saying like, what is wrong with you? It's my, it's my mother and my sisters and my kids and their kids. Um, is that, <laughs> is that um, as a working parent who lives outside of a city, um, one of the reasons why we all live together is economically we save a lot of money living this way. Um, is that I'm able to make meetings and I'm able to make rehearsals in a way that I 
often aren't am not able to because I'm just zooming. Um, and I have other problems with like seeing my family and having a, a meaningful relationship with my family members. But before I had to say no to a lot of projects because um, I couldn't get to them either because they were like literally in New York or LA or somewhere else. Um, or just because they were in Boston and they were back to back, it was like six hours back to back. And I was like, I can't dip, dip out of that because I have to go home or, um, or physically you really can't do that. You have to, you have to go home to sleep. So um, the Zoom workroom has allowed me to work in ways that are uh, more accessible to me as a working parent, particularly as a working female identified person. Even though it is tough, I will say, you know, uh, Zoom school is tough. Zoom teaching is tough. But on the flip side, uh, there's been a lot of opportunity there for our family. Yeah, it's interesting, all of the the sort of silver linings of um, of the more working from home and the the sort of the slower. I don't know, I guess, although Kristen, you're saying that it's not slower for you. It's actually it's actually more you're more engaged right now, um, which is a really uh, it's an uh, amazing sort of silver lining, I think. And the the kind of the democratization of art that you're talking about with how much more accessible things are um, when they're online. Um, yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that that and I would say that sometimes when I hear talk of like when we get back I actually have like physical pangs of like what are we going back to because I was really we or I, we are definitely having those conversations in the theater world about accessibility and what are we getting back to and who's getting who will get what and hope but um I do get worried about what we're going back to because what we were, where we were at before everything shut down was not the best place for everybody. Yeah. Are those conversations you're finding you're having as well, Teresa? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, in fact, I'm working with uh, my friend Jade and Carol, um, who's a director and she has just been tapped by Dorset theater to like spearhead this, um, uh, festival it's like a she's com basically commissioning writers to to do to write radio plays which is what I'm writing the other radio play for and um yeah the idea is of, yeah to make theater more <laughs> to make theater more accessible um but also to make um uh, the process of creating less uh taxing on the artists um and not just writers but the actors you know who i mean like right now it's so many so many are out of work right because they're not able to go be in the space right um whereas with um you know the radio drama right it's like okay you just need to have like a quiet spot <laughs> where you can go with this microphone and, you know, and record. So yeah, it's, it's access to every, you know, for everyone's first, for um, both audience and creators. Um, yeah. The conversation about what, what we go back to, whatever that might be, 
um, certainly is something that we're talking about a lot at Jiva. I know a lot of theaters are talking about it and about, you know, particularly, um, maybe it's happening everywhere, but certainly our experience at Jiva as a predominantly white theater institution. Um, uh, it really trying to to respond to the demands of the we see you white American theater um, uh, demands, um, and I'm wondering if sort of as as you think about what it is that we go back to, do you have a a sort of a hope or expectation about what that might look like for you, or what a what a good place to return to would look like? I think, I mean, if I could, if I could start us, start us. Please, um, <laughs> No, the, uh, just thinking a lot about, about space and physical space and the fact that we have not been in the theater space. Like I have not been in a lobby that is, that is not our lobby at Jibo once a week. Um, but like, what, what, what do I want going back into those spaces? And I would like to feel more comfortable just like walking in and feeling um, and feeling, you know, not like there are a thousand eyes <laughs> on me as soon as I've done that or um, or just being really excited to think about how how theaters are reimagining their the like tr- traditional everything. But I think specifically the um, specifically space and also in thinking about like pandemic's still happening and still will be happening for a long time. And so it's already going to look different and it's already going to feel different. Um, when you're, when there are like (laughs) spatial requirements and like seats will be blocked off. And, um, I'm just, I'm, I'm really excited for theaters to like, to really blow up that idea and to make it more inclusive. Mm. I'm laughing because I'm like <laughs> I know exactly what you mean about like walking in a space and like the eye the eyeball for whatever reason right like I noticed that your hair is up right now right I have literally had the experience of going into a theater sitting in my seat and I've had my hair up right and I have a lot of hair y'all for those who can't like my hair was up and I heard <laughs> I heard the woman behind me go, oh, <laughs> like as soon as I sat down. And, you know, I didn't. Oh. On the one hand, it's like, bitch, it's my hair, you know, like it's, it's attached to me, you know, like it's a. But on the other, I have had that experience of sitting behind a very tall person, for example, and just being like, and on the inside, right, go, yes, oh, right, um, because there's nothing, there's nothing that person can do about their freaking height, right? So, um, but, you know, I, I wound up sort of like turning around and being like, am I blocking your view? And she goes, well, yeah, but I, I don't see what you can do about it. And I was like, and I just took my hair down and her face like uh, totally just relaxed into this, like, 
this a mask of gratitude, right? Like of like, oh my gosh, like someone would do, you would do that for me, and I was like, well, yeah, because common courtesy, which is what you did not extend to me, <laughs> you know, when I sat down and you very vocally went, Ugh, right? Um, so, yeah, I would like to be more comfortable too, yeah. not just because I I as an immunocompromised person, right? Like there's no way you're going to get me back into a live theater until like all is well. I have been vaccinated. People are safe, right? Like, and even then if someone coughs, I'm going to jump, right? You know what I mean? It's like, but beyond just that, yes, it would be really, really nice if, if I could walk into a theater, particularly if it's a, um, first of all, if I could walk into a theater and have it not be predominantly white would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even if it were, like, it would be really nice to feel like I'm not going to be an imposition or like I'm not going to make someone uncomfortable with my presence or that they're not going to be looking at me sideways the entire time or looking for an opportunity to police me if I laugh too loud at a joke, right? So it would be really nice <laughs> um, to be um, considered and... Um, yeah, included in the people that are, you know, welcome with open arms back into the into the live theater spaces. That would be very nice. That would be amazing. And as Fran was speaking, as you were speaking, I thought it'd be nice to be comfortable. And when I walk into those spaces and it's either just me or one other black person, one other person of color, I, I know that I'm increasingly aware of wanting to make sure that those other people are also all right. Like, so yeah. I think the other thing I'm looking forward to when we come back in the future, and I don't think it's a magical future. I think we can do it. I don't know when is that like, this hypervigilance that I think many people, BIPOC people feel, we can eventually walk into a space and not always have to feel that because that is emotionally very taxing and unsustainable to live like that all the time. So, and have to walk into public spaces and, and feel that all the time. Um, so I walk into a theater Commonly white theater and um, just having to take care because I feel like something bad is going, might happen. Like, like I, I would love to not have to feel that all the time. Mm -hmm. um, or that I feel that generally like we're going to, we're here, we're all going to have a good time. We're all going to have the experience that is intended as opposed to hearing the, and be like, oh no, like really? Oh no. Do I need to get someone for you? Like, <laughs> what do we need to do? <laughs> Especially as like either working for that theater or working for any theater or just being an artist in general where, you, I don't know, I feel like there are moments where I like have to pull out that card if there is, <laughs> if there is a situation that arises and then you go like, wait, why do I need to like, justify myself as a member of this you know industry in order to make things okay mm -hmm. so I, I was just thinking also about 
I think, Kirsten, what you were saying at the beginning about sort of, you know, being at that August Wilson play and being like, well, is that is that a thing I could do? Mm-hmm. Like the more that um, the more that theaters produce more plays by BIPOC writers, include more BIPOC representation on their stages, on their staff, that that kind of thing. I think the more, hopefully the more that question, like there isn't that feeling of, well, I could never do that because of who I am. Hopefully that, you know, that, that changes that possibility, opens that possibility up. I hope so. I I mean, I'm just, as, as, as you're saying that, and as Fran was talking about, I was, I was thinking about a time when, um, in the not too recent past, uh, a door was locked in the theater I was working, working for with, and, um, someone came out it was after hours and I was like hi you know I have rehearsal in there and they were like oh I can't let you in the door's locked and I was just like my I want to be like my face is on the marquee oh my god (laughs) you know my name so so I'm hoping that like we are able to ha- occupy these positions and then also have the moments of recognition where like, yes, we're here. <laughs> and you also know me. <laughs> Very funny. So I was like, oh, you know what? I'll wait till the next person comes and I'll get to keep, keep from that person. Mm. Oh, no. Faith is behind you. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's, 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 we laugh about it and I'm just, I'm glad that we can laugh about it. Because otherwise you would just want to die <laughs> like what you know but yeah I, I guess I'm laughing because you know recognition is always funny right like recognition is always the the the, the key to um to humor um but yeah I had the same thing happen to me on the last time it happened I was in Miami teaching a workshop <laughs> with, with city theater and they were hosting them in these workshops in a fancy hotel and you're on the the workshops were on like the third or fourth floor like it wasn't even like you would just walk in off the street and you know be in it like you had to know where the workshops were and they had this breakfast buffet all laid out and I remember getting off the elevator (laughs) walking over to the breakfast buffet and helping myself to some danishes or whatever and having one of the hotel employees come up to me (laughs) and be like I'm sorry, you can't be here. You can't. This is this is for guests. I was like, um, <laughs> I my that's literally me on the poster. Like I'm really having to point and be like, I'm I'm teaching the workshop. That's me, right? <laughs> you know, and having him sort of walk away sheepishly without even apologizing. It was just sort of like, oh. And it is, it's, it's, and to then have to go into work after that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as if nothing happened and as if, you know, um, nothing, what really, what can undermine your professionalism quite like that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) um, yeah. It's like when you, when you already have, imposter syndrome or think like can I be doing oh, <laughs> right like, and it is 
it's interesting because um, I, I, th- I think so much about having like teaching because I, I do definitely think of myself as an artist, teacher, art, artist and teacher, whatever, however it is often termed. And so having to actually like make the conscious choice of like, this is the type of teacher I have to be because I could, I could see another side of myself just being like, I'm just going to be the type of teacher who like carries my flask and acts completely crazy when this <laughs> happened to me. Um, because I ha- I actually, uh, I, I don't I don't know colleagues who do this now. I actually don't. But um, when I was coming up, some of the mentors or people that I knew, some of the greats that came, like the generation or two generations above me who would come as guest speakers, I were hearing some, some crazy stories about some people. Um, and 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 recognizing it that there's might be reasons why these people behave this way mm-hmm. uh, because whatever is happening with them and their intersection with the world yeah. and that the reason why they're not doing the faculty dinner <laughs> because they're in their hotel room because they just can't mm-hmm. um so i i know that sometimes it is, it is it has to be a choice to to have those experiences and then step into my teaching life or my family life in a different way than some of the people that I revered and then came to know a different side of when I was coming up. Just trying to picture you walking into a classroom with a flask. Oh, it'd be such you. You, I'm already. You've seen me already loopy as my normal self. Can you imagine? You have to peel me off the floor. No, <laughs> not productive at all. I am famous for having my cell phone on, like doing the the leg dial and. Fran has heard me like whole lectures of my classes because I Absolutely. turn my phone off. <laughs> I miss those. I miss those a lot. Yeah. I'm thinking about um, not to uh, make a huge dramatic shift of subjects, but I'm I'm thinking about the ways that you're talking about sort of having to respond to um, to acts of racism, really through humor, um, you know, act through um, or, or or sort of through like a redirection of your own energies. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about the ways that that connects with the characters that um, are the main characters of the plays um, that are gonna be in Recognition Radio that you've each written. And I wonder if there is, um, uh, if there's something you could say about that, about how you, how sort of turning and and it's probably not you know it's not taking from your experience directly but how how does that um translate into what we see on stage or in these characters i love working with characters who um insist on asserting their humanity in the face of forces that would um deprive them of that, right? Um, or or ignore it or um, just fail to acknowledge it for whatever reason, right? So um, with the bleeding class, um, you know, having this um, brown woman who, you know, for all, and I was just trying to think, again, I was trying to like, I said last night, like that I, I started writing this play <laughs> about a Dominican American hooker who saves the world from a plague with her DNA. 
I started writing it as like a wacky premise, like as like a, a oh, wouldn't this be crazy? You know, like as a, as a, um, I started it um, last year. So, uh, yeah, so it's kind of crazy that we are where we are now um, and that we're talking about using. Yes, we should just we should try the vaccines out on black people first. Right. Like that's that this is where we are. So, um, yeah, I just want to. I just want to put the, those characters to the forefront, you know, and and, and really show people like, look, when you undervalue people like this, people like me, right? When you undervalue us, this is what you miss out on. Like you are doing yourself a disservice by not paying attention to my humanity, right? By not um, acknowledging um, that I am a person and by treating me like I am worth less than some other person, some other people, right? You are missing out. Um, and I really, I really try to make it a point to um, point out concrete benefits to other people because they, I'm trying to speak to people who may not, who may not share my values, my like hippy dippy, touchy feely, warm and fuzzy values of like, oh, life is, <laughs> you know, all oh, life is precious and la la la, right? Like, there are people who need to be convinced that this is the case, right? Like, there are people who, who are just like, well, what's in it for me, you know? If, um, well, I'll tell you, like, we won't boycott your company, <laughs> right? And it won't like affect your bottom line, right? Or, like we won't like burn down your city. We, you know, like we won't we won't ultimately eat the rich if the rich like pay attention to the poor and um, do what's what's right and um, acknowledge that we are worth something. I that was amazing. I don't even say all that. Oh my goodness! I want to reset as a forward one of my plays. Um, I think, yeah, like you know, in theater we have the 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 saying like yes, and so mm-hmm. to build on it, like um, this is this is a much more like sitting in a therapist's office answer. If my my family um, uh, coming from a family that where you know when negative things would happen to us growing up, we often deflected with humor. So for me, it's like, it's much more simple, I think. Um, uh, and so I use that a lot in my plays. Uh, when, when, when cruelty happens uh, to you, when something is, when the world voice something onto you, um, I think sometimes I use that in my plays to show that there are more than one way to react to a situation. Um, and uh, was during one of my, writing one of my plays called Luck the Irish, which is about my family um, integrating the neighborhood there where my mother ultimately ended up growing up in. Um, which, as an adult, I look back and want to ask so many questions of my grandmother and my grandfather. Like, oh my God, what did you do? What was it like? And um, when I asked my mom, what was it like? I mean, she will tell me um, 
really awful stories. But when I asked, like, why grandma and grandma didn't talk about those things, why were their stories almost always about um, the immense pride and triumph? They did not talk to us about some of the uglier things that happened mm -hmm. in that town. And her response is almost always, like, they were very forward-thinking. Um, so it's really interesting to that we were taught to deflect with humor, and I use that in my plays a lot. And now, you know, you spend the whole second half of your adult life being like, okay, well, what are the other emotions besides the humor? So you can use certain plays to go to, to use humor and comedy, and then there's a whole set of other plays where perhaps there's other emotions to, to dig up as well. Yeah, I, I think about, like, like the absurdity, of, like the humor that comes from absurdity a lot and how <laughs> a lot of the situations that I sometimes find myself in, um, in which, you know, like a racist comment is said or there is a microaggression or like something like it's it feels so absurd to me, like the way that I'm experiencing it is as absurdity. And so reflecting that like on the or or trying to like reproduce that on the on the page or on the stage like there is like humor that comes with that like it's seeing that moment from far away but then like <laughs> and also like in, in in thinking about like oh did that just happen to me like that you know that's crazy especially when you're when you're telling somebody else you know when you're having that moment of like um of you know, catharsis or whatever, where you're, where you're experiencing like, oh, you won't believe what just happened to me. And often like you laugh about that experience. Mm -hmm. um, I think the like intersections of all of that is really, really interesting. Um, can you talk about genre a little bit? The genre of your two pieces or like of the pieces sure. you um, have, have written in the past? Um, which is like a, a thriller, sort of like horror, um, and the sort of resurgence that we are seeing of that, especially in like the film and TV world right now with black horror. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much. Um, I've been so excited about that and like, you know, what, um, what, what your thoughts are on that. And I'm thinking specifically like shows like Watchmen or Get Out or Lovecraft Country, which is the, the newest of that ilk. Have you watched any of those? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I think that's really, I, I mean, what better tool, really, um, to communicate the, the horror of, of the moment, um, of the moment, of the, of the, decade of the century right <laughs> like what what other I mean now that we're in here like I feel like it's taken this long it's taken this long for us to even be able to uh, I feel like we just got here like I feel like we just got to the point where we can use um certain genres that where we haven't been you know represented not just on screen but like off screen or not just on stage but off stage you know like I just I feel like um we're 
we have latitude now that I think, I don't know, like the, like where people are suddenly trusting that we, that we know how to tell a story <laughs> and that, and that, um, and that we can use whatever medium, whatever genre, right? So like um, horror, which is, I mean, come on now, like the joke, the big joke for um, black people in horror is like, you know who dies first, right? Like that's, that's we've come from there to um, the place where you do have someone like a Jordan Peele and a company like Blumhouse, which is like, uh, nope, we're just going to tell all these stories about Black people and they're going to be horrific because that has been, our, our experience has been horrific, right? And um, and actually our, just our our very existence, like we, we don't have to invent monsters, right? Like we, <laughs> and that's fun too, right? But we don't have to because we encounter actual monsters every day we see them on the news our country is being led by one right now like that's led i use that word um yeah we don't um i mean it 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 feels like a a pretty square alignment (laughs) i'm just excited that these stories are being told that people are making them people are watching them I think the huge difference is, difference is like 20 years ago. So Feeding Beatrice was written, I don't even want to say it because that means I'm really old. Um, but it was written 20 years, tw- over 20 years ago. And um, uh, granted, it was one of my first plays. So no one, you know, no one's going to produce the first play that you get sent out by a, an emerging playwright. But I also think people were just scared of it. And there was no way to, figure out where it fit mm-hmm. um, in the um, genre of black literature. It's like, I don't know what, I've never read anything or seen anything like this that I know of. Um, so I'm going to, I like it, but I'm going to put it to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just, I'm really glad that these uh, uh, pieces are being made because it proves that there's um, that black literature, uh, black drama, that there's multiplicity there. And then it isn't just one thing, it's multifaceted. Um, And that black performers can do more than one thing because um, we love August Wilson and many of us as black theater artists grew up seeing seeing August Wilson and reading August Wilson and knowing how much his life and work means to us but we all are able to revere him and his life and have him be part of our canon and not just the only thing that black artists know how to do. And so by having these, uh, this genre and in, in concert with other genres, you can say, there's a lot, of, a lot we can do. We can do a lot. We can be superheroes. We can run down the street, get hit by an ax. We can do many, many things. Um, <laughs> And uh, um, I'm, I'm very, very excited by that. Um, I, I do remember, I think it was in early rehearsals or, or early workshops of Feeding Beatrice, um, 
uh, somebody who was in the cast just being really flummoxed by that idea that like there were more was more than one black person in feeding features and they don't get all chopped up and killed or being like if there was a ghost in my house we'd all just run out and that would be the other story if this was black people and a ghost of the story i'm like no black people we live, we live with ghosts all the time <laughs> all the time we are living with ghosts we're fighting with them all the time um uh, and we're not running away from them. We're living with them. So I'm, I am very excited. I've only seen Get Out, and that's because, so I live in a very old house, and I, um, by the time I get to watch TV, everyone is asleep, and I, I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> so I am going to be watching these other things when I, um, my, my drafts are done, and that's my gift to myself in, a, in about a week and a half, two weeks. Because I'm I'm scared. There's no yeah. my family won't put put uh, drapes on the windows, and so I'm in the country, and it's just dark. So mm. I'm living and get out, and I'm too scared. Oh no, <laughs> Chisa, what about you? Do you have a favorite of these? Oh, good God. of this genre. Don't ask me that. <laughs> I maybe that's unfair. Yeah. No, I don't. I I mean, I can't. I I wouldn't even. I can't even answer that because they're yeah. just all so exciting and fresh. And um, I've been waiting for them. You know, yes. I just, I feel like I've been so hungry for um, these new thriller, horror, melaninated, you know, <laughs> like um, narratives, man. I've just been like, yes. So I, my eyes, my mind, my brain, my soul is just like <laughs> to all of it. And I haven't even really been differentiating. I, I haven't, I yeah. couldn't even, I couldn't even answer that question, but I have seen all of them. I'm watching Lovecraft Country right now. I've been watching, uh, I watched the, I watched the shit out of Watchmen. I watched that, like, <laughs> go that down, like, super fast. Um, um, anything Jordan Peele ever does and ever will do, I will watch. <laughs> um, so even the Twilight Zone, which actually, I guess I should say, like, this, which is not my favorite. No, <laughs> that new Twilight Zone is not my favorite, but I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. And as far yeah. as, oh, and... Uh, yeah, see, I'm I, I'm ready to see some theater though. Like I'm ready to see some some black horror, you know, on stage, even in a Zoom. Like I will take a Zoom of a of a of a scary story. So of course I'm so ready. Like I'm, <laughs> okay, okay. Give, me, give me give me yours. I want to see it. Likewise, yeah. Well, I, we're so excited to be doing your plays as audio plays and, um, you know, certainly hoping that they, 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 um, I know Kirsten, uh, Feeding Beatrice has been produced once last year. Um, but, uh, really, really hoping that, um, that, you know, more and more productions of these plays and, um, yeah, uh, Hor more horror plays on stage is such an exciting thing. You know, I want to be scared in the theater. I like, that's an experience. I don't feel very often like from the, you know, the content of the plays that's so exciting uh, to, to look forward to. Right. And it's live. Like, we yeah. do not want to do horror in a live <laughs> medium. Like, I mean, it's expensive, but you know, beyond that, like, why would you not? Yeah. Yeah. So exciting.
Well, and, you know, we could talk for like seven more hours. Um, and, you know, I would be so happy to do that. But I don't want to um, expect you to stay for that long. So <laughs> um, I want to thank you all for for this extremely amazing conversation. Um, and just thank you for being here and, you know, so excited for everything that comes next. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great. Thank you. All right, team, that is the end of our rehearsal day. I will see you all back here tomorrow. Please check the daily call for your exact call time. Out of the Rehearsal Hall is a podcast production of Jiva Theater Center in Rochester, New York. I'm Jenny Werner. Special thanks to today's co-host, Fran Dasilvera, and to our guests, Chisa Hutchinson and Kirsten Greenwich. You can find out all about Recognition Radio and Kirsten and Chisa's plays at recognition-radio.com. And you can find this link and more information about our conversation on Jiva's blog at jivajournal.wordpress.com. Andrew Mark Wilhelm composed our theme song and is our audio engineer. Our artwork was created by graphic designer Amanda Rickstons. Today's rehearsal room calls came from Kara Parrish. Find out more about Jiva and our 2021 season at jivatheater.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review for us on your podcast platform or share the podcast with your friends. And we'll see you next time. We're out of the rehearsal hall. Mm-hmm.